Hi, and welcome to the VFX Show. I'm Mike Seymour, and this week we are joining the internet's favorite dad, Pedro Pascal, on his uh, journey uh, across different frontiers with different children. And I'm joined by my favorite uh, daddies, uh, Matt Wallen. How are you? This daddy is keeping it real, feeling good. <laughs> and uh, Mr. Jason Diamond. Uh, doing great. Not uh, quite as Burt Reynolds-y as uh, Pedro Pascal's doing these days, but feeling pretty good. He's got to be feeling pretty good, right? <laughs> I think he's doing great. Um, so we're going to be discussing The Last of Us and we're going to be discussing Mandalorian. And uh, we just couldn't pick between the two until we immediately realized, of course, why we liked both, or at least some of us liked both. But let's, uh, before we get there... Um, <laughs> Pedro Pascal came to everyone's attention, I'm going to say, in Game of Thrones. Um, Jason, were you like zeroed in on his I, performance? Yeah. I didn't watch Game of Thrones beyond season two, to be honest. Wow. However, however, I believe I'd seen him in, in I think, part of season one of Narcos. Yes. And, Narcos. But I think I <laughs> came to love him in the um deadwood in space film prospect mm. uh that i okay. absolutely love and saw it south by southwest the year it uh, came out and matt did you get to see him in season four when he appeared in game of thrones i remember him in the game of thrones but i first was aware of him in narcos uh, as well i think that's a unsung uh, at least the first two seasons of that show are spectacular, really well made, and he's great in it. He plays a, a like a, I guess like a DEA type agent, right? Uh, mm -hmm. I haven't seen it in several years now, but uh, really, really well done. And uh, yeah, he was, I was like I was definitely a, the most magnetic uh, mustache on the screen. I think <laughs> I was ignorant on that show until I was at FMX with. Uh, my best mate, John Montgomery, and he was like, oh, I'm going to watch it. And I was like, really? What is this show? And uh, yeah, he was totally into it. And uh, so uh, that's my introduction. But I, I guess I really identified with him from uh, Game of Thrones. So what were you mispronouncing Game of Thrones as, my friend? Oh, me? Game? I just said yeah. Game of Thrones. I don't know. <laughs> okay. You went Scottish some, for a second. Some yeah. meme reference that I didn't no. get, perhaps. I'm just speaking being absurd. Of, <laughs> speaking of memes, uh, in his role as the internet's dad, uh, he has exploded because, firstly, as a Mandalorian, uh, with uh, what we're going to refer to, well, I'm going to refer to as Baby Yoda. I know that's not the character's real name. Uh, and then Last of Us. So one of those, he's performing primarily with a uh, helmet on, uh, but the other... The other not. So let's let's do a quick take on what we think of the shows before we get any further. So, Jason, are you a fan of both of those shows? Uh, I'm a I'm a fan of both. Uh, I'm going to add in another uh, film that I love him in, which was Wonder Woman 1984. I didn't like the film, but he was he was super fun in the movie as the villain. Okay. Uh, anyway, I like both shows. Um, I appreciate the the apocalyptic nature of last of us i didn't play the game i don't know the storyline so it's all new to me um i i appreciate that it's more about the people it, it feels closer to station 11 than it does walking dead and station 11 is one of my favorite series ever uh so i you know i i it's maybe not the greatest show but i appreciate the art that is put into it and 
things like episode three, where they just, you know, really go for character building and all the things. It's just, it's what you want in a show, in a, in a, in a world full of uh, zombies and apocalyptic shows to, to not have zombies everywhere and to kind of have it be just like post zombie era. You just come into them a little bit. Um, and Mandalorian, I, I mean, I, I think Mandalorian, I'm, I kind of um, combine them Mandalorian. I think uh, both of those shows are the peak of the uh, Disney Star Wars, you know, content. And uh, and I I like it. I mean, I, I'm a sucker for good world building. I feel it. I think also think that for whatever reason, the visuals this season are kind of really stepped up um, in the environments and uh sort of i guess maybe it's the rendering pipeline i don't know but it feels less virtual production and more just big world okay well before we get to visual effects and world mm -hmm. building let's uh let's get matt's take matt are you uh uh mando and uh last of us fans i really have uh you know i reluctantly uh watched the last of us i wasn't at first really that interested in it because i I was imagining it was going to be some kind of, yeah, like another Walking Dead kind of show, which I got kind of tired of watching <laughs> and like those sort of zombie apocalypse. But um, uh, when I saw the the showrunner is that guy, I was just looking up his name. Uh, it's uh, Craig Mazin. Craig Mazin. Mazin. And uh, he well, had Tim also... and Neil Drucker, right? Right. And, but Craig Mazin, I think had been, if that's how you say his last name, he'd been the mm -hmm. showrunner on Chernobyl, which mm -hmm. was, I thought a spectacularly, uh, horrifying historical drama that was oh, so gripping so good, and so, so good. well, so well made. Mm -hmm. And so I was like, well, I got to check this out and see like, you know, is this guy like, you know, it was it lightning in a bottle. Can he do this again? And I thought the, exactly what Jason said, I think last of us, uh, really surprised me i i found that i really uh liked the building of that relationship between uh the two main characters the pedro pascal and the uh the young uh right. old woman yeah yeah who is great uh and really grew to just really like her character a lot i'd never played the game i wasn't really familiar with that uh property but it it really took a different uh kind of bend and it had a slightly different angle it was less about you know, the zombie apocalypse or the, the fung fungus apocalypse. And it was much more about, uh, that those relationships in a really potent and powerful way. And those, those side tangential journeys that they took, I thought, um, were really, uh, profound and, and fun to watch. Um, this, uh, what is it? Third season now or fourth mm -hmm. season of the Mandalorian? Third, um, yep. third season. I, I concur. Well, I mean, third I and think... a half, if you count the half a season that they <laughs> sure. basically Boba Fett. Yeah, yeah. invaded Boba Fett. Yeah. I just kind of feel like, you know, it's just not a show for me, really. I've watched it. Like I kind of have been joking around saying I'm hate watching it. Um, cause I just think it's maybe it'll all come together at the end of the season, but I'm not super optimistic. It feels like it's a show for really, really, really super little, tiny, very young children. <laughs> wow. And, like the, me. <laughs> and, but the, the, the story absurdities in it and the, the level of, uh, 
just real hammy writing and stuff. It just feels so cornball and like it's gone into some, the effects are really great in it, I think, and pretty consistently good, but it's gone into this territory that I just, it's, I, I find it uh, just laughably embarrassing to watch, but uh, I, I have been watching it. So, you know, maybe, maybe I'm a masochist or something, but uh, I haven't really been enjoying it. And who knows if Pedro Pascal's even really in it, you know, he's voicing uh, stuff oh, in it. There's two other I, guys. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, who are those people in those? Re- I mean, the whole thing with the helmets and they, they can't take off their dumb helmets. I guess now there's this potential that they'll have a new leader and they'll walk in both worlds, but it's like, what? It's the dumbest cult of morons I've ever seen. Like, I just think it's absurd. Okay. Well, let me just back up and say, I do think The Last of Us, I agree with you guys, it's particularly good. I actually started to watch it as a video game, or play it, I should say, as a video game with my daughter because I'd heard that the digital rendering of the digital humans was so good. So as an exercise in digital humans, I was like, okay, I've got to watch this. And uh, so I bought the game and my daughter and I started playing it. Now this is like what, 2013, 2014, which is, you know, mm-hmm. a decade ago. My daughter was younger. I was younger, but my daughter was younger. <laughs> and to the <laughs> point that she and I got freaked out and scared by the zombies, we stopped playing it, right? Because it was just too scary. Like it was just too like, I just, you know, zombies jumping at your face, just, yeah. So when the show came out, I watched one episode and I went, yeah, I'm not going to watch the rest of this because it's just more zombies. And and I had the sense from the first episode that it was just going to build into, as you guys said, a lot more of a, kind of the zombie apocalypse uh, fighting sequences that we've seen in other things. And it was going to be just depressing. You know what I mean? Like I just thought, I'm, I just, I'm not up for just dystopian miserable mm-hmm. futures. Mm-hmm. Now I go, I, I totally understand that there's no real market for utopian dramas because if it's a <laughs> utopian future, nothing bad's happening. So it's all good. So it's not very dramatical. But having said that, I was just like, oh, really? I mean, after COVID and everything else, I really have to just see humanity like destroyed by a virus. And then the internet started bubbling away and exploding around episode three. And I, you know, was sucked in by this meme that started up about episode three of Last of Us was as good as the opening 20 minutes of Up. And I was like, I'm sorry, what? Like I thought the <laughs> opening good, of yeah, that Harrison. Pixar film was spectacular because it you know, had whatever it was, 20 minutes of no dialogue uh, and a love story between an older couple. But you saw it over the you know span of their relationship growing. And I was like, this is some of the finest work that Pixar has ever done. So if somebody's actually equating it to this, which I thought just totally elevated Pixar's work, which was already extraordinarily high in storytelling to just mythical levels that they could pull that off in a kid's TV, uh, kid's film, I thought, well, I'm going to have to give it another whack. And so then, of course, I did watch episode two just so I could get to episode three. Mm -hmm. And I was stunned at how good episode three was. I thought, you know, I, I admit I was a little cynical that it was going to be that good. Um, I thought it was brilliant. I thought it was breathtaking, uh, obviously spoiler alert on this, but I also thought it was, uh, such a genuinely, uh, warm and loving relationship between a gay couple where the fact that they were a gay couple wasn't some major plot thing with defect in their characters. It yeah. was just who they were. So it was a, such a 
an extraordinary thing to have such a genuine, authentic, and now I'm not a member of the gay LGBT community, so I'm speaking as an outsider, but it just seemed like such a genuine depiction of, of that relationship. Um, well, everyone can I thought, well, relate to like love, right? Like you can mm-hmm. yeah, see like love each a other, relationship. Yeah. 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 But, but I guess I'm just sort of speak on behalf of that community, but I'm just saying like, mm-hmm. it just seemed like such a healthy representation um, or, and depiction in that it was neither the reason that it was the story, nor was it the thing that was kind of just there for token value and whatever. Anyway, it was just great. And uh, so well, then I just I kept interrupt for a second, but it just, mm-hmm. it, the other thing that episode does is it does it so subtly. It not only introduces very um, non expositional information for how they communicate and how you get to Joel and Anna in the middle of the episode. And you're like, Oh, this is connected. But also when they talk about the music and different eras of music are different danger levels and all this kind of really subtle things that you hear later. And when Ellie and Joel go there, you know, it's, it's so masterfully subtle. It's, there's no like, you know, siren calls for, for all the information. And then the real sort of subtext of the whole thing is the breaking down of barriers between the right wing and the left wing. Because That's what I was going to ask you guys about, because it felt to me like yeah. such a beautiful way to make a, a positive political statement about yeah. divisiveness without ever sort of making reference mm-hmm. to making either side look comically stupid. You know what I mean? Because while I might have very strong opinions on certain US presidents and their ability to maintain dignity in the sight of anything, I don't think that anyone benefits from just assuming that the other side of a political debate are stupid, bad people. Do you know what I mean? Like, And so it was just nice to see both sides kind of with, uh, yeah, anyway, so what a what a remarkable yeah. episode, and and I got hooked for the rest of the season. I admit that there are a couple of eps that I found like jump scary. Um, my go to genre is not horror, yeah. Uh, but yeah. Now let's go back to the Mandalorian. The Mandalorian I find to be just you know as cute as all get out. I don't agree with your assertion that it's just for tiny tiny little kids. I do think that it's walking a very delicate line with being so self-referential mm-hmm. to obscure sort of Star Wars-y lore in a way that Andor wasn't, um, that it almost feels like, you know, you're making a uh, sort of a best of reference to, hey, how can we bring these characters from the animated series into the canyon mm-hmm. of the live action? And we're just going to appeal to people that they're going to, oh my God, that's the really obscure, that's like R5D2. Oh my God, of course, you know, and he had the knob on the left with the, with the mm-hmm. blue bit. And you're like, like I care. Um, that being said, yeah, we're going to get on to the visual effects. I mean, the visual effects definitely are spectacular. Whether or not it's, <laughs> it's a realistic cult or a sensible cult. I mean, I would criticize a lot of stuff about, that kind of stuff in the Star Wars universe. But it is kind of nice that those stories, the Mandalorian stories, aren't all pivoted around one Skywalker-ish family. Like, I think that's what I liked about Andor as well. Like, I kind of feel like they've just rung the, 
last living gasp out of anything to do with the Skywalkers, as it were. And it's so nice to just not be, to be still in that universe and not be, you know, just trying to milk another aspect of whatever happened to Luke. So, yeah. I mean, I, 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 I don't disagree with Matt in that I, you know, it's the difference between John Favreau and Tony Gilroy, right? Like Favreau is a fan. Gilroy doesn't give a shit. He just wants to write good drama. And I think that's what, you know, I'm not saying Gilroy doesn't like Star Wars. I don't know that speculation, but he doesn't approach it as someone who likes Star Wars. He approaches it as someone who says, oh, here's the story I want to tell. And it's in the Star Wars universe. Whereas Favreau writes from, I want to write a Star Wars story in a Star Wars universe. It's a subtle difference, but you know, I I don't don't think, think, I think you're, I think you're missing Dave Filoni there. I think Dave's the one that's heavily leaning into the history of stuff that happened in the Agreed. the animated but series not John No, Favreau. I agree. I, I, I agree, agree John Favreau is a but, fan. I just feel But Favreau, yeah. but Filoni I expect it from because that's like he's picked up the torch, right? It's his job to be yep. George basically from a canon and a storytelling standpoint by all accounts. Uh but but Favreau and Gilroy are while Favreau and Filoni are, are partners for all intents and purposes at this point, Favreau has the ability to step outside and he's got Filoni who will kind of keep him in the, keep him in the world and give him all the, the giblets, you know, that he needs to, to make people excited about star Wars. I just think he could stretch it more. You know, I, I think he, he, I think Favreau specifically, while I like what he does, I think he's the one who is thinking about stories for kids and Gilroy's thinking about stories for adults. I, it's just how it feels. I'm not saying that's how it is. I don't know either of I them. I mean, Favreau, but- yeah, Favreau was writer or co-writer on every episode in season yeah. three. He was only mm-hmm. the writer on six of the eight, I'm going to say, six of the eight. He also that, wrote all of, of Boba Fett, um, which three. was terrible. Well, yeah. I th- mm. There are theories floating around of what happened on Boba Fett, and some of them are related to people that are no longer actually in the Lucasfilm Disney empire. So I can't really comment on that, but I do agree with you that there was some bad <laughs> stuff in, 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 in Again, in it's, it's approach. But, hey, it's so, approach. It's not the, you know, it's not the writing is so much, I'll use my director brain here. It's not the, it's not the writing specifically it's the approach, right? The approach to Boba Fett was wrong, I think. The approach okay, to Andor was right, in, and the approach to Mandalorian yeah, but, is kind of in the middle. But what I would say is never before have I been so aware of who's directed a television season. Like in sure. Mandalorian, like this week coming out is Bryce Dallas Howard's EP, mm-hmm. which is her EP number, it's chapter 22, EP 6, right? Whenever she directs something, I'm like, give her her entire trilogy of films because I think the woman is just sensationally good. She's done great. And I've got to tell you, whenever I see Robert Rodriguez is directing an episode, I'm like, I'm going to hate it. Yeah. And I wouldn't have thought that was the case, but it kind of is. Can Um, I throw out that episode two? Yeah. Episode two of season three, directed by Rachel Morrison, was a gorgeous episode. I was watching it and I was like, who directed this? Because the camera shots and all the stuff where they were, when they went to Mandalore and uh, they went down into the, to the, uh, I, I want to say the mines of Moria, but that's the wrong uh, IP here. But 
uh, the the yeah. the oh, minds yeah. of Mandalore. She's a cinematographer, right? Uh, yeah, I mean, she's directing now. She's she's um, directed a, a feature in Which, um, a boxing feature in about something in, yeah. in Flint, Michigan. But she was a cinematographer but, on Black Panther, right? Yeah, and tons of and tons of great looking films. Yeah, I mean, she's incredibly talented. Um, but I. I think her episode, and maybe it's because she's a cinematographer, her episode particularly looked and had a great feel to it, uh, direction and cinematography-wise, that I had to look so it up. So join us, join us on this, Matt. Do you think that you're aware of the director and that there's like a lot of variation in these shows based on just the director alone? Mm, I mean, you know, at the end of each one, I'll look and see who directed it and and you know, uh, Rachel Morrison, I recognize, uh, that name. I recognize a couple of the other names, uh, from, I guess, previous, uh, either episodes of this franchise or something else. I guess I, uh, I appreciate what you guys are saying. And I think, you know, that's, that's great nuance and stuff. I guess I just feel like it's a, to me, it feels like it's an endeavor that has, completely lost its way. Like I'm sure it's making a fortune. It's selling a lot of like, you know, little soft toys and, you know, things of that nature and stuff. But so it's, it's fulfilling its purpose, but it in terms of its corporate uh, shareholder dividend purpose. But I, I feel like it's, uh, it's so much fan service uh, that it's the kind of thing that, you know, when you look at, I've been fascinated at some of the really hardcore critiques that have been uh, articulated and published in different, you know, venues online and stuff about the way people look at some of the extreme fan culture uh, that's centered around a lot of these Disney properties, the Marvel universe and the Star Wars movies. Mm -hmm. And I think there's something there. I feel like, you know, the the sort of critique proof uh, uh, vehemence with which uh, the kind of cosplay fandom universe uh, is unwilling to accept uh, a divergent criticism. There was just a side note that I think is kind of connected, at least where some of my feelings come from about it is the New York Times film critic, uh, A.O. Scott, uh, just left. He, after, mm -hmm. you know, 20 plus 30, I don't know how many years of being the one of the film critics for the New York Times, you know, like it was like a great gig. And he talks about in a episode of the Daily Podcast, the New York Times podcast, he was interviewed, or maybe it was Ezra Klein, I can't remember which, but he was talking about why he was leaving film criticism. And he was saying that, you know, there's, there's no place uh, for me anymore. He was sort of like, you know, not in a negative way, but he was sort of like, you know, he was done. And part of it was, you know, when he critiqued one of the Marvel movies or something, he, he just talked about, you know, what I think is kind of true about some of those films that they're really, they're great for like the industry. They, you know, saved Hollywood, right. And brought people back to the movie theater. There's all those things about them, but they aren't, um, very sophisticated narratively. They don't ask much of their audience. And he made some critique and Samuel L. Jackson responded to him on Twitter or something was the story about how he, um, he said something like, you know, 
A.O. Scott, you know, like needs another job or something like that. It was some real harsh thing about that because he said he didn't like the movie. He didn't think it was very good. He thought it was kind of, you know, tin can writing and, you know, I can't remember what the exact uh, verbiage was. But it was like and then he was attacked, you know, for like having a negative opinion about a thing. And I think I, I feel like there's a connection and this is a big stretch. This has nothing to do with the VFX show, but I do think it's a, it's important articulation of at least my view. I think you could draw a connection between the extreme fan culture and that cosplay thing and this sort of critic critique proof mindset around these things and the kinds of divisions that we see at least right now in our country but i think you're seeing it around the world i think there's there's a connection between the political vehemence that we see in our society and the entertainment that we're consuming the entertainment is a reflection of the larger political uh discord that we see and i think that some of these franchises frankly play into these divisions in strange ways, I guess. And I, I find it disconcerting. <laughs> that's my critique. I mean, that's my, you know, then I, yeah, you know, I guess my it's thing just is what I'm seeing. It's what I'm seeing. It's what I read. No, no, I understand I that. But the thing is, watch this stuff. But if you look at like, pick a high point of cinema, right? Like I know, the seventies indie stuff when the, when uh, the sort of 16 millimeter sort of filmmakers came through and stuff like whenever mm -hmm. you, can pick or even go sort of further back to Citizen Kane period. In parallel with all of those things like the conversation and Citizen Kane and like these landmark um, films that had incredible depth and were worthy of film critique, there was trashy, you know, Gilligan's Island and a ton of other stuff that was the Brady Bunch. It was like it was mm -hmm. mindlessly... But there um, were both, and I think a lot of but the there were other both. stuff. So, is do you really think there isn't out. any of that here now? Well, but is so that much like, less. is that you being an old can? Well, are you being a conundrum, like a, a grumpy old guy, kind of like? Because I mean, isn't that the accusation of every generation? Or do you really think that there aren't kind of dramatically, narratively challenging films think, being made today? There are I think some, but I just think it's yeah. a different, I think the economy has changed and the economics of cinema and of Hollywood have changed. We've moved into a universe where there's less support for unique individual voices and less risk-taking at the studio level. They've all become these huge media conglomerates and they're publicly traded companies who are looking to have, you know, mega profits for their shareholders. Like that's the driving force. Okay, it's but, not, it's different. But, I would, but I, I, Hold on. I don't disagree with you, Matt, but I also think that the amount of marketing and media saturation that we get around all these things is higher and louder than it's ever been. So you're inundated with the properties beyond being, you know, used to be, you used to decide to go see a movie or not. Maybe you'd see some ads for it. Maybe you'd see some what, but now every website you're on, every time you're on the internet, every time you listen to uh, anything, there's ever all of this stuff is part of the conversation to your point about yeah. maybe mirroring culture or whatever. I think part of the thing you're feeling, and I'm not, I agree with you about probably 70% of what you said, but the, I think it's more just the inescapable nature of marketing 
in 2023. Maybe, but has there ever been has there ever been an entertainment franchise in cinema that generated the number of films and the number of dollars that the Marvel Cinematic Universe has No, generated? that's what I'm saying. That's I'm yeah. saying that there is a volume I agree with you that there is but a that's volume. That's why I'm saying it's, it's just, I think it's different. That's all. Like, hang on, I, it's just, just more okay, people just like and more things. money. I, but, but, but wait, no, hang on. But wait, for a start, your thing is about media saturation. But part of that is that you're targeted because the media is now driven by personalized advertising. So that's it knows true. you're in film, so you're being that's hit really hard, yeah. which makes it feel more personal, which makes it feel more direct. The other thing is... There are been tons of franchises throughout history. It used to be, however, that the sequels dropped off dramatically in quality. And so they died off quickly, right? Like the first film's really good. They'd make a kind of a sequel. I'm going to go to Planet of the Apes. And the first film's amazing. And then the next one is, and then whatever, Jaws. Yeah, pick them. And they just started to decline to like near comical effect pretty quickly. And so the industry changed to get better, if you like, about building up franchises, not just milking them out. Now, whether that's a good or a bad thing or not, I accept that it's totally happened and there's nothing that's ever got close to Marvel in terms of straight box office. But at the same time that you're saying that, we could be having a discussion right now about this golden age of television where there is more challenging, unusual, uh, incredibly extraordinary television than we've ever seen before because while you might feel like there's been a contraction in having challenging movies being made, and certainly the blockbusters have been pushing out the the television, that's happening at a, with a subtext of a massive move away from cinemas towards television generally because mm-hmm. home theatres are so good and cinemas are like, you know, whatever, expensive and there's yeah. a whole lot of other stuff going on there. And so you end up trying to get blockbusters to get bums on seats on opening weekends, which therefore dictates a certain type of film. But at the same time, if you go back and look at the television when it was just on the networks, the three major networks, and you've basically got the $6 million man competing with I Dream of Genie competing with, you know, whatever it is. Like, I mean, I'm sure I'm getting my years wrong, but you know what I mean? Like there just wasn't, like Three's Company wasn't Shakespeare. Yeah. (laughs) Well, that's true. And yet today you get shows, like I was thinking the other day about that show came out a while ago, I think it was Devs, you know, like it had the whole idea yeah. of quantum computing yeah, and stuff. Hard. And it's like, that like was really thought provoking thing. And I would argue that uh, there, is a, there are still really good films that come out, like um, The Midnight Sky, which Clooney made, right? Which was like a really smaller, independent-ish film that was narratively driven about characters and wasn't just a big effects film um, but it was like an interesting film there have been other films that have been really really i mean tar um, yeah exactly tar the souvenir the and souvenir part two so, so i don't think that's dead but i think that the stuff that we're getting through television is is inc- i mean that's a totally i just want to make i totally agree i think you make a great point but i one last point i just want to i just want to throw this idea out into the ether of whoever is listening to the show, which is um, what are uh, prominent acts of, and small acts, quiet acts of rebellion that exist today against the larger kind of overculture? Like where is subculture? That's all I I feel like we, it's something that's missing, at least in the universe that I see. There's very- So you don't think- you don't there's think very that the fact less, that anyone can make less. a TV show and put it on YouTube 
Yeah. Well, they could, but they're not they doing want it. With pretty high production value. Oh, come on. Of That's, course they are. Well, well, you you really of, don't think that in the vast expanse of YouTube, there isn't critical stuff? What do you watch? Well, I'll even YouTube tell you. Cat videos? I'll tell you even. I don't really like, watch you YouTube. Know, <laughs> my, well, there you go. But my kid plays a game called Rust, which is like an open world game, right? And every time you spawn in, you're naked. You have to like find stuff build it, whatever, you have your bases, you and your friends build up bases. And when you're away from your keyboard, the world's still going and people raid you while you're sleeping and what have you. They give you a pretty robust camera system similar to, I mean, it's blockier. It doesn't look like Fortnite, but it's blockier. And you can record your moves and go back and look at them, you know, through different camera angles and things you want to do. And there are people who make hour long films of their game. Mm -hmm. from different cameras that they make, edit it together, create, they color correct it, they add music and they create narratives that are not about the game they've played, but narratives they overlay that they've written based on the game they played with like an, almost like a Malikian, Terrence Malick-esque inner thin red line dialogue. That is happening at an alarming rate of people making content around their personal an alarming experiences. alarming rate or a marvelous rate? Well, I, I, I don't mean alarming in a bad way. I'm saying it's a, it's an incredible rate. I, I didn't mean it negatively. I'm just saying these they've just released being, Unreal. Uh, yeah. For Fortnite, Fortnite creator. Right? You've, got, you've yeah. got the ability now, Fortnite creator and the stuff that's going there. I am so out of touch with my dear colleague, Matt, on this one that it's not funny. But I'm going to swing back to the visual effects, right? Because it is the VFX show. Yeah. Okay. So VFX show wise, right? <laughs> We've got uh, a lot of stuff coming out of ILM, obviously on the Mandalorian. We've got a lot of stuff coming out of Weta uh, on The Last of Us uh, and healthy use of practical uh, makeup and stuff, obviously in The Last of Us and light stage right, left and center on the Mandalorian in terms of uh, LED uh, volumes tech. So, so if we can agree to disagree on the quality of the shows, the nature of the industry and, and the political um, uh you know, and I mean, you do raise a good point and I, but nevertheless, if we can just park it for a second yeah, and go yeah. just for the effects. Yeah. So Matt, in, in terms of the visuals and the, cause you obviously worked at ILM for many years and mm. know so many people there. How do you feel like that episodic production value and quality of visual effects is coming through on the series? I mean, I, I think it's, uh, the digital visual effects are incredible. I think they're so sophisticated, the level of uh, the camera work, the dynamic simulations, the, um, I was just thinking of the one, the episode they just had, I guess, where the, there's a big ship, the pirate ship, right? That it, it mm -hmm. uh, is under attack Memorial. and they, yeah. you know, they, uh, tell us three times in the script that they're going to go for the last engine, you know, like, and it's like, <laughs> but eventually they blow it up and that, you know, the, but the dynamics and stuff in that and the visuals of it. And then the, uh, the thermal dynamics of the, uh, explosion and all the debris and stuff when it finally does crash. I mean, you know, I watch that stuff and it's really just, it is flawless. You know, I don't look at it and think like, well, that, that doesn't look, uh, very good. And I, you know, the, all the, the heavy dynamics of things turning slowly mm -hmm. uh, in atmosphere and stuff. I mean, all that stuff is just so incredibly fun to watch. I think, you know, there's a moment in that one where there's a, 
want to say that starts with like Y wings and then it ends with, there's a scene with an X wing that lands and, Mm -hmm. and all that stuff is cool. Although I would say in the scene where the X wing lands, the black levels in the comp looked like they were like kind of off to me. Like it was, it was, it looked uh, pasted on. It didn't feel like it was there. It was almost Hmm. too contrasty, the X wing in the foreground and at least on my TV, (laughs) but um. But uh, like a you know, minor quibbles of, of of any sort, really. Like it's it's strong. It's really strong work. The um, I think they've really mastered uh, the integration of the um, the volume, the LED wall stuff. I feel like there's mm-hmm. a lot of stuff in that now where I have a hard time seeing where the seams are, and they've Agreed. really gotten smart about different ways of moving the camera. I think there was one shot in this last episode too, that really impressed me where it was clearly part of an led wall, but they also had made the decision to add like blowing. I think it was like just sand or dust kind of blowing through the environment that they Mm -hmm. added in between, you know, the, where it was like partially in the stage, but partially on the wall. And I was like, well, now that's killer. Like I can't even see it, you know, like I'm not even, I'm not even really thinking about it until afterwards. I I started to think like, oh, that's new. I haven't seen that kind of integration that way. So I think in in what you're seeing in Mandalorian, um, all that work, uh, and you know, as we sort of talked about it with the Andor uh, stuff too, I think it's really sophisticated. It's very well executed. Um, I think, um, yeah, I. I sometimes take issue with designs, but like, you know, so what, like that's a, a, just a personal taste thing, I suppose. Um, And overall though, I think it's really, really good stuff. It's super strong. I'm, I'm, I'm never uh, my, my, um, what is it? Suspension of disbelief is never required Mm -hmm. with the visual effects. And I think that's really positive. The only thing I'd say is when they first land on Mandalore to go down to discover that the mines uh, and the waters are not there, like they first, um, they they sort of land the ship and Baby Yoda's still in the ship and he goes kind of walking off. That had all the hallmarks to me of an LED stage. It just felt like it was shot on a stage and it felt like it was an LED stage at that and there were some partial rocks in the foreground and and it was contained and it was like they walked over there and then behind a rock because they couldn't keep walking any yeah. further because they'd walk into a yeah. LED wall. Um, I thought, well, and yet when they I thought down that environment the mountains, looked really I nice. I didn't have that. Yeah, oh, it looked sorry, nice. But, when, but no, I was going to say, I hear like, what you're saying. I think below the, in the mines. And I think the charm of the puppet walking is not so charming, really. I think it's almost <laughs> like it's, it's, there's it's a funny. couple. Yeah, there's a few shots of it where it's like it's so mm-hmm. it's so puppet that it's almost like okay, I get it. Like you know, there's there's this kind of you know fan homage to this thing, and it's like it's cute, but it's like you could do something a little more sophisticated with it and still have it look like a puppet. It's so puppet, it's almost over the top. Yeah. In that episode where he met or, or trained with Luke Skywalker, I thought they handled his walking stuff better than they have yeah. in what they've done there. Similarly, in his fight sequence on uh, when he's first uh, as a foundling trying to shoot mm-hmm. the three uh, paint gun things, yeah. 
that also felt to me fairly oddly kind of. It looked like they threw him. You know, it was like it didn't have because um, yeah. you because he's like soft a toy. <laughs> yeah, well, because he's a bro- a block basically. Other than his hands and his head, you there's no like you can't see him curl yeah. up like <laughs> yeah. when Yoda. You know when Yoda fought Dooku, like he That's moved exactly what I was going for. Because he yep. you, he had that a torso, right? Like he and has he, and he his could, his costume flayed yeah, out and yeah, stuff too. The yeah, fabric yeah. simulations, yeah. But this so, is like a swaddled like you know yeah. pound bag of flour. You know, like yeah, yeah. yeah. He doesn't, so his, the trouble his, is, I think his stuff is stiff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that this is where the fans have really let down the series because they're so obsessed with it being a real thing, like a mm-hmm. real as in puppet thing, that they are. Matt, to your point, making it still very physically. I think the face is being replaced and stuff, but most of the body, they're trying to keep it as real as possible so that the fans know it's a real puppet. I mean, I. Which makes it, um, I was going to say, just it's a Muppet play, right? It's like one of the things that you thought about the Muppets were so good is how expressive they can make Mm -hmm. this puppet and how realistic it looked. And you were kind of in awe of the fact that when you know, one of these characters was beside a live action actor, the live action actor would laugh genuinely and mm-hmm. uh, and react to it. And you're like, oh my God, those puppeteers are so clever. And I don't want to be ever taken out of the show to say, oh, how clever are the puppeteers or how right. great that they did it old school. And so, yeah, I think that that the fight sequence that you referenced there from the films uh, was so much better with Yoda. But the trouble is that then it's all digital and then all the fans yeah. scream, no, no, you did it all digital. We want, you know, the Muppet back. I mean, look, I've I've said this before, but I've worked with Sesame Street for over 10 years. I know what puppeteers, good puppeteers can do. I've stood next to all of them doing what they do and seeing them. <laughs> it's like <laughs> literally seeing somebody do the magic trick and being like, I'm so shocked. I have no idea what you're doing because it's magic. It can be magic when good puppeteers, and I'm not, judging the puppeteers on the show. I'm just saying when in general, when good puppeteers do their work, it's magic. It just is. I am so envious of your career with the Muppets because I need to. It's just (laughs) brilliant. Yeah, it's uh but I'm uh, I'm curious in the case of the Muppets. Yeah. Oh, sorry, go ahead. I was gonna say in the case of the Muppets, right? You 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 love that physicality. Yeah. Yeah, they have his guy, but you also you love that it's that's what they are, right? Yeah. But I don't feel like that's what's going on here. I feel like what's going on here is we're making a putting a matte painting in because we want to tell you that it's a matte painting, and so for yes. that to work, you have to know that it's a matte painting, which by definition means it's not as good as what we could have right. done digitally. Exactly. And have, have that's you guys? Kind of what's happening? I'm just curious. I, I I mean, I'm wondering if it's just me bringing my own uh, baggage to watching season three, but. I'm, have you guys felt it all in this season? Like you're seeing story and plot and action-based decisions that are being made that feel like they're about maximizing profit and minimizing production budget. <laughs> like I feel like um, there's a, there's something I feel like I'm seeing in the packaging. And maybe I'm just like, mm, but then you wouldn't have here, done the Curious Light like, episodes. You know, when they go, they go yeah. to the guy that's clearly the the guy that's doing the, the cloning. And mm-hmm. I still don't understand that plot. They seem to get him to steal equipment and then kill him. But I oh, right. hopefully that'll be resolved in the show. 
But there yeah. was a lot of visual effects in that sequence, like a lot of stuff that you didn't th- have to include yeah. if you wanted to save money. I thought the Coruscant stuff, given that Coruscant, we're har- we're hearkening to the prequels, which are you know can be a, a sore spot for a lot of people. I thought Coruscant looked fantastic. Like, yeah, me too. It was like it had depth. It was clean as shit. And I'm not saying I yeah. like everything has to be super clean, but like it felt really good. Like it, it like yeah, I was like, okay, this is how it's supposed to feel, right? Like the prequels looked great for the time they were in, but they had a they had a vibe to them, mm-hmm. um, you know. And they did the little nod to like Padme's ship, you know, when they got in, and that was the big chrome chrome job. I think you I know? think yeah, that's that was a good joke. I think when they jumped off the train was probably the weakest of that sequence. Yeah. Uh, yeah. When they sort of exited the train, which I didn't really buy at all. Yeah. Yeah. Like you can't jump from a speeding train like that and just happily roll. See that to me from a, from a fan service standpoint, I would say like, I literally thought to myself, somebody really loved building some old empire looking shit when they go into the star destroyer. Right to get stuff. But that was like, visually interesting. That was no, no, it was. I it was, but it, it's just the jumping off bit. Yeah, yeah, but it felt like it felt like you know. Okay, we need to. We're, we've been in this world too much. We need to. We need to give a nod to some design from the original trilogy, almost, uh, and or bridge to the to where you know where this goes, which is of course you know episode seven because we're like in between six and seven right now uh if i'm not mistaken so you know there is new republic gets taken over by the first order you know i'm I, if i'm not yeah. mistaken uh timeline wise <laughs> but i'm just saying like also, you know keeping that in in yeah. well i do that because i'm obsessive but you know i like all the it's also not uncommon for people it's not uncommon, Matt, for them when they're making a show to say, we need to spend a bunch of money here because that's going to require a whole new world build. So we're going to have a smaller episode here. And I definitely felt that a bit. With the Mandalorian by the beach stuff, I was like, yeah, yeah you're just saving some money here. <laughs> this is like I gone guess on an LED I guess stage. I, I mean, and- I, I know that that's the case when you have like X amount of money that you have you know, per episode or per season or something like that. And you're sort of optimizing what you're doing. I guess I, I feel like, I feel like I feel it in a way that I didn't feel it in the previous two seasons. Like, I feel like I can feel okay. myself being pulled in these areas. And I, and I, as I'm watching it, I'm like, huh, like the, the consistency of, of narrative and production quality, uh, episode to episode feels kind of really varied and i know we have different directors all the time and stuff but i don't think it's that i feel like it's i i, I don't know i just i feel like i can see the bottom line i have in one each episode in a I weird want a good way. example that i think completely makes your point which is on navara when they have to exodus the city right the city's under mm-hmm. attack from the pirates the whole of the city has to come out and there are 20 people standing around a rock <laughs> yeah, and everybody like, else yeah. was murdered and I, Really? Really? Because that's no, kind of... I mean, it just you know, was like, like, yeah, I thought the same thing. It, it was like, wow, felt this like, is small. The stakes feel small. This well, and then small. you see... Yeah, really Well, small. then, right. And then when the pie, you know, you cut to like, the town's taken over and it's just like six pirates drinking and like 
wandering through a destroyed city. Like, how does that help them in any way? Like, don't they well, want to the, loot and pillage? Like, That's part side. of where I feel yeah. like it feels like it's really for really little kids because it's it's like it's absurd. Like it's like what's the yeah. what are the stakes? There's no stakes for anybody. Like yeah. you know, you can't take your helmet off. Okay. Like, I guess that's the stakes. Well, know? I don't mind but that. That's a huge, I, I, I can say that's a I huge problem with this yeah. sort of a show, right? The huge problem with this sort of a show is that, you know, you know, Mando's not going to die. You know, Baby Yoda's not going to yes. die. So, you know, <laughs> and and also yeah. I would say that's it's the same problem that's polluting. There, there are two problems polluting the Marvel Universe right now, which is not only can nobody die, but if we do kill them, we're going to bring them back because we yeah. have a multiverse. So there's no stakes at all. You could like graze your finger and it'll be fine because it'll be solved within milliseconds. Either new tech, um, you know, another character yeah. or another metaverse thing. It's just, there's nothing, nothing that I'm worried about in those things yeah. at all. I, Which uh, I think is why, I was going to say, is why, which why Ant-Man I think went so badly. Well, the last yeah, Ant-Man. I seen it, but really I have to see it. Yeah. I haven't seen the last couple Marvel movies. Um neither. Yeah, but but the um I do like the sort of visual language they've kept up and maybe I think updated in this season which is the flying in cockpit scenes now that he has a smaller ship they're like they go for the top gun shots which I think are really cool and like you you really feel the grogu like wonder of like he's the kids right like he, you you see the reflection of light speed in his eyes or he's like looking around and he's the wonder the audience's wonder um and uh and all the baby noises you know i mean it's it's i i love it because he's just super cute but like it's um i do like they even they even went a little more like uh interstellar by getting a lot of shots with the camera attached to the body of the ship kind of stuff, which gives you, you know, like there's a shot where, um, what's her name? The, the new potential leader, uh, lady, um, has her big, has her big, uh, transport ship. And she, that camera's like stuck to the kind of side, right. You of the camera. Bo and you, yeah. Bo-Katan. So there's a shot where she's coming into the atmosphere and the, camera sort of like center right and the left um sort of piece of the ship is like vibrating just enough like it doesn't feel like yeah. this big rigid thing that's so large like yes wind shear coming into mandalore is high and it's wobbling a little bit like stuff like that i i appreciate those those tiny um those tiny things but i was going to say something else um I we need to shift these over to The Last oh, yeah. of Us because we yeah. can't finish the show without discussing giraffes. Yeah. So, mm. so let's go to the other side of Pedro's popularity right now, which is The Last of Us, because um, we spoke about the story and narrative and stuff, right? But there was a lot happening uh, in that show with environments that I think were spectacular. Uh, but the one that seemed to spark a lot of interest amongst my VFX colleagues was what happened with the giraffe ep. When you were watching the giraffe ep, what did you think you were watching, Matt, in terms of effects? 
Oh, I think it was, I, I thought I was watching a largely augmented environment, uh, and it felt like um, it reminded me of a shot that I actually worked on that I hated, that I've always thought is the, one of the worst shots I've ever done. And it was a shot from The Mummy uh, where you see the whole city of, I guess it's Thebes, I think, you know, out in the distance. It's like mm -hmm. a flashback to uh, the, I can't remember the guy, Im Imhotep, when he's like the king and his mm -hmm. lady, his lady friend. And uh, they're standing in front of like the whole of the city. And it just, it has perspective problems. It has the issue that I think was the thing for me in that uh, sequence. I mean, I thought it was a nice, it's a nice sequence narratively. It's kind of a cool magical moment, but it's foreground, background, and nothing really in between. They had some mm -hmm. vines, I think, hanging down there. And it's, to me, it's one of those kind of shots that like, it just falls flat. But I believe if I'm not mistaken, that that giraffe was, they had a real giraffe. Is that true? Or is that, am I wrong about that? I won't answer that. Jason, what do you think you're watching? Was that in the last episode? Mm, I can't remember what episode that is. Quite, I don't think, but close. I maybe. think for some reason I'm completely well, they get, they blanking on that sequence. They go to the top of the building. Uh, they have a ladder to go up. And then she shoots up ahead and Pascal runs after her kind of angry and she climbs to the top of the building and then she's just stopped stunned and he walks up and there's a I, giraffe's head sticking through oh. from the outside world. And then there's an outside uh, shot and you see giraffes on the rooftop because there was a zoo in the right. city that they were in. Yeah, I, I for some reason have no recollection of that sequence. I don't know why. Wow. It's just like, yeah, hmm. just like... Okay. It's just like, phew. I was like, because I haven't finished the last episode. And I was like, oh, maybe it's in the last episode. But maybe it like, was. I, I just, it just. Maybe what? it is in the last step. Maybe it is. Maybe. Because uh, I have the last episode heavily as the flashback episode, but I don't want to spoil it for you. So there you go. Oh, well, yeah. Um, but okay. So the thing about it is, it was. People were basically, who didn't know, just criticizing whether or not. So firstly, they were criticizing that giraffe was CG and all fake. Then it was, they had publicity photos showing that there was a real giraffe. So then they were all like, people were, you know, having a go at the people that said it was all fake CG. And then it came out, Weta did it. And I think Weta did a superb job. And the reason why I think they did such a superb job is giraffes do look funky, right? Like they mm -hmm. just are yeah. funky creatures. Yeah. As far as I know, from, from what I, I haven't spoken to the guys directly, the giraffe, certainly the environment and stuff that's all digital, they shot the giraffe on a blue screen. So, and I don't mean just a screen, I mean like a set that's blue effectively. So the the underneath where Ellie is standing and like where she's resting her hand is like a blue wall that the giraffe is sticking its head over. Behind the giraffe is blue. Around the side of the actors is all blue. So they got uh, spectacularly good stuff with Ellie and the giraffe, which, you know, you can do. Like in Australia, if you go to Sydney, they have a, place that's high up that you walk to and you're at head height with the giraffes and then mm. the keepers feed them carrots and you know you can be like two feet away from them and watching this and so they're just phenomenal creatures but the thing about it is that um the blue the entire blue environment doesn't work very well as you guys would know so well in the fact that it's meant to be an outdoor daylight scene yeah because you yeah. just don't get any artificial light that gives you outdoor lighting so they had to compensate that by having digital augmentation of the giraffe so you've got a combination of 
just close to Ellie, some live action giraffe, away from Ellie, digital giraffe, and the rest of the giraffe, of course, as it walks away, and all the other giraffes that are in the distance. And I think, I think you can be a prat on the internet and claim that that was like faulty in some way, and you don't know what you're talking about. Because I reckon in a blind taste test, knowing which part of that giraffe was digital, which was real, oh, or yeah. not, like you'd have to be in the industry to know what the hell's going on. It's so the avatar, so see avatar roll the dice, like tell me which part of this shot is real and which part of this shot isn't. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. but I think, I think you're right, Matt. I think that there's some inherent staging issues. This, by the way, it's is a shot design thing. You know, it's yeah. like, I think it's I, from that happens. Game. I feel like there's a shot like that in almost every movie. It's cool when there's not one, but where there's just like, there's something they want. The board looks really cool. The, you know, whoever drew it up the board, it looks awesome. You're like, oh, this will be a great shot. And then you get all the pieces together and you have all mm-hmm. the elements and it's like something just kind of doesn't gel and even no matter what you're doing and as uh, an artist on that shot you know for me it was as a comper on the on the shot in the mummy i'm thinking of and it was just like oh god it just I, i'm never putting that on my reel like you know it's just it doesn't look good and it doesn't look good because somebody was an idiot it just doesn't look good because like in the end it just it didn't come together it's a bad design and it's hard to execute something you know uh, and make it look good when the overarching design and the problems that it presents to creating mm-hmm. a sense of visual realism, um, you know, with like a really deep focus and stuff, it just, it falls apart. I would also argue for, if you're really going to lean heavily on fan service, you don't know the game. I don't know the game, but I've looked mm-hmm. online and seen the side-by-sides. They are, to Mike's point, what he said about the, you know, this shot being a scene out of the game, like they are reproducing shots that were cinematically composed in the game, but cinematically composing in a game versus in a real world is two different things. You could move stuff in the game or do whatever. You That's know, a good point. I didn't even think about that. I so, should see some of that stuff. I'd never looked that at is any a, of that. I mean, there is, there is some significant, I guess you could call it fan service. It's it's different because it comes from a visual medium. It's almost like a remake in a sense, right? Yeah. Um, but so they're they're really like settling into a bunch of shots that are very similar. And you know, Neil Dr- is it Druckmann or Drucker, the the other the writer and showrunner with Craig Mazin Druckmann. is the writer. Yeah, Druckmann is the yeah. writer of the game, right? So like. He's the Filoni to Mason's, you know, Favreau, as it were. But also it's, it's really like an adaptation from a novel. That's how I would read it. Right. Mm -hmm. That I don't think it's so much a remake, but like in the novel, you might describe a sequence and it's a pivotal part of the narrative in writing it. But we have the advantage that it's only been formed visually in my head, not drawn in the book here. When you're doing the adaptation from the video game, we actually have the visual that mm-hmm. people kind of know so well. So there are millions of visuals in this that match the game. Like, yeah, like right down to zombies that are attacking them where like, that's the zombie that, you know, you had to hit more times to kill it <laughs> in the game kind of thing. Um, and so, yeah, there's a lot of, lot of that, but Can if I you don't know my... that, it's oh, just a, yeah. I'm not gonna say if you don't know that, right. It's yeah. just the heart. It's just like a weird looking zombie that you just, you know, it's not, the same as the other zombies because he's bigger and heavier and whatever. In the case of this shot, I, I just to be picking it apart, I totally agree with Matt's point earlier, which hadn't dawned on me until you articulated it so well. 
it's the foreground to distance stuff that's the problem, right? Mm -hmm. It's like and the, the problem is that the giraffe and then the mm -hmm. distance. And the giraffe yeah. is right here with us, and it doesn't feel like the feet of the giraffe are in the same world as the plane that the other giraffes are on that they're looking down on. It's like we've got, yeah, like a window into something that is deliberately a faked up trick or deliberately a mock-up or a deliberate, you know, like kind of thing that you have a theme park, right? Uh, so, yeah, I think that's, and I think of that also is to just connect the two, the problem that I always am worried <clears throat> about with the LED volumes, that the mm. LED volumes have the distance and they don't have anything mm -hmm. in the mid-ground. And so yeah. uh, while I'm not saying that was an LED shot, I feel like when you get that phenomenon in uh, some of the stagecraft stuff, it's when stagecraft doesn't work so well. It's when you feel mm -hmm. like, oh, okay, sure, there's a rock here, and then there's nothing until that mountain over there. Yeah, yeah. I'm um, I'm going to point out that I saw a very well known, the premiere of a very well known action franchise in uh, in South by Southwest when I was there, and I thought the LED work was subpar for that exact reason. There was the characters or character, depending on the shot, and then clearly the volume. fourth in a sequence of yes. films of a yes. franchise, was it? Okay, yeah. Yeah. Oh, the, well, yeah, I mean, I'll throw in a little John Wick for uh, criticism here, but it may, it it supports your point. There is, and a bunch of my friends who I was who I was with were like, it felt uh, it felt weird, and I was like, here's why, because there was no mid ground. It's like, oh, John Wick standing on a big staircase and a thing, except the staircase and the thing, and all of it was on the wall. And so you have someone 15 feet away from a wall, nothing in between, and a simulated 15 feet in between. But of course, a camera can't fake depth of field, but there's nothing there for reference, visual reference. So you end up having the character in sharper focus or seemingly sharper focus because you can't perceive the fall off to the mid ground mm -hmm. to then get to the deeper, you know, uh, shallower depth of field in the background, which you need on the wall to give right. distance. Unless it's like on a 300 mil lens, that's really annoying. Sure, right? right. But this is these are like medium shots or just like people yeah. like, we've done it, you know, and you're just like, the lighting's off, the there's nothing in the mid ground, and it just feels like, Matt, you're saying like cut and paste. Even though yeah. there's a physically something there, there's a wall with shit on it, and there's a person, they're being lit, it's actually not a visual effect shot to us in the case of a composite, but it feels like a terrible yeah. green screen. Comic. Yeah, it's a structural problem in terms of yeah. how they execute the the work. The one thing I will say, uh, you know, the other thing, I think you said this at the very beginning, Mike, I think I do think the best stuff, I mean, the, the zombie things like the, both the practical and the CG zombie costumes are fun. They're cool. They're kind of weird looking, you know, the exploded heads and stuff. It's kind of a neat, uh, weird aesthetic that's kind of fun to see. And the integration of the two is great. But the environment work in the show in total mm -hmm. is just off the charts. Great overall. I think whether it's, I, did, I can't tell. I'll be totally honest. I don't know. Like, is it all digital environments when they're moving through a city or are they shooting in location and they're augmenting stuff so that it's looking digitally doing some augmenting and some set dressing and augmenting stuff so that it looks a certain way. I mean, it's, it's a very impressive world building mm -hmm. that's going on where you feel watching it like um, there's very few 
aside from the maybe the ones that we've articulated, there's very few things that I remember seeing where I was like, ah, that looks really fake. Like I was like, wow, that that's really cool. Like, were they really in that? Not highway? only was there a few like, things where it know. felt fake. There were very few sequences that felt like they're on a soundstage. When they first mm -hmm. break out in episode one or two and they're just on the other side of the wall and they meet the guy that um, he's been dealing the black market with, that felt like mm -hmm. it was on a soundstage. But but most of the time, it just doesn't feel like a soundstage. It feels like yeah. it has height as much as it does depth. Yeah, and the whole Boston sequence, yeah. I thought, I thought uh, was fantastic. I mean, yeah, you're going like a through things and you're on top world. of things. Yeah. Yeah, and obviously they're in real locations, like when she blows up the zombies. You know, can I, that's a, obviously in a real hall of some kind. Mm -hmm. um, and the can horse, I tell you two when funny the horse is that shot, I, that stunt, yeah. Sorry, and the integration of that oh, yeah. stunt in that mm -hmm. shot when the horse is uh, shot, and she and the Ellie character flies off and falls mm -hmm. and is knocked unconscious. Yeah. That is. I can so tell you two funny powerful. things in a second, but so I was going to say no, that horse thing might remind me. There's some spectacular drone work in there where it's not mm. just your obvious drone work. There's a right. couple of good aerial shots in episode three that were mm -hmm. really just classic mm -hmm. drone shots. But there's some horseback drone shots where I'm like, mm -hmm. that is really nice right. use of drones. They are yeah, yeah. They're traveling where you just couldn't do it otherwise. Yeah. Um, can I tell you two funny things? In researching the show, I came across two things on the internet that I thought was hysterically funny. One of them just reminded me, Matt, that you said about uh, what was, somebody, somebody's done this video of like the visual effects of, of the show, the last one. <laughs> and what they've done is they've grabbed frames and they're saying, so I think, like, no, I think, they have no idea what they're talking about. I think this is real. I think this fire is probably put in, but this fire isn't. And I'm like, dude, you don't know what you're talking about. Like, this is just complete <laughs> bollocks. Somebody's watching this going, really, that's fake fire. It's like, you don't know that. You have yeah. no way of knowing that, right? Like, I just thought, like, the whole show, right, is just them with painting over the top of frames saying, I think, I think that this is prosthetic, but I think that this guy, uh, this guy isn't. It's like, yeah. Very. The other Can thing I, that's really funny oh, is- Oh, go ahead. Yeah. Go on. No, just, no, and this is yeah, just to the, how, how Baby Yoda has gone into the zeitgeist. If you get on a Google, uh, you know, like a Chrome thing and you search Mandalorian right now, a little Baby Yoda appears at the bottom of the screen. And if you click on him, with the force, he starts ripping apart the web page. And so he literally lifts out the section about IMDB or about the Mandalorian and then throws it off the screen and lifts up other sections. And your whole web browser gets taken apart by uh, Baby Yoda <laughs> from the bottom corner. If you don't That's touch cute. him and scroll away, he just disappears. And I'm like, why did they do that? Somebody had a lot of fun doing it. But um, yeah, it's, yeah, I, I don't know how long it'll be. Some web designer wants a job at ILM. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Somewhere beside it. But I just thought that's two sides of the coin, right? One is like clearly franchised uh, corporate communications that's done a very good job. And the other one is just fandom running wild with people, uh, you know. Can I say what know. I think is one of my favorite yeah, of overall sequences of, of Last of Us? And mostly because as someone who grew up playing video games and appreciates video games, um, and Last of Us comes from video games, you cannot make a show from a game and remove the game mechanics from the narrative. Mm. Uh, be, so because, so there are moments in Last of Us where it you feel the game mechanics, you feel why the character blocking is the way it is, is because it would be that way in the game. And I, 
And I think the best illustration of that is the bloater sequence, which is the big fat mushroom dude that comes out of the house in the cul-de-sac. So like, that's a perfect, to me, it's the whole mission from when they get there uh, and the kids, the the three kids, you know, Sam and, and Henry and, and Ellie have their kind of, you know, um, blocking that they do. And then Joel goes up to the, the yeah, bell the tower basically. Burst, and burst, that's burst. clearly like a video. I didn't play the game, but if I, as someone who has played games, it just seems like super logical. We're looking <laughs> at game mechanics as a narrative and I love it. And then, of course, off in the distance, while you're doing all your things, the truck is sinking, sinking, sinking. You hear the zombies and then they all pour out and then you're like, yes. And then you get the big boss dude come out. Yeah. And it just I thought that that totally whole sequence, agree. it looked fantastic. Uh, you know, it's nighttime and fire and illumination and all this stuff. It's really difficult to do without it feeling black levels all over the place and cut and pasted shit. Granted, they built the whole they built that whole cul-de-sac uh, for real and then, you know, added visual effects to it, obviously. But to me, that was the, the, for the show and the concept of, of adapting a video game. I think the escape be in from a real the hospital world, not like, is yeah. the same. It's the same yeah. as what you're describing. Mm-hmm. It feels very yeah. much like this, a sequence from a game where you, and it yeah. feels staged in that way too, when he kind of, finally like goes, you know, John Wick on the hospital yeah. tries to find her and save her or whatever. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, that's a really yeah, good that point. Was nice with the audio. It's, it's kind wasn't of fun. That, wasn't that know? nice with the audio? Yeah. Mm-hmm. But the, the way they did the audio on the, on the John Wick's go in the hospital sequence. But yeah. Yeah. It's kind of remarkable that you can have a video game that is translated to the screen, which normally would mean that it's pretty thin on stuff. And it mm-hmm. delivers Sam and Henry and uh, and Bill and Frank, right? Like right. those, I just, they're both of those two plot lines just are extraordinarily punching above their weight for a, a video game. And I know that they, they deliberately, as you said before, the, the same writer, right? He said, oh, uh, with Bill and Frank, I wanted to have more, but I couldn't in the video game. So now I can. So that's yeah. great that he wasn't limited by the video game. It was like, well, I think this is valid to what the intent was with the story. Um, but yeah, I mean, Sam and Henry is just a really moving piece of plotline. And and you can see why The Last of Us did really connect with an audience in a way that, you know, if you go back a few years before this video game, like back earlier in the 27 mm-hmm. kind of period, you know, there really wasn't a lot of story the, the cut sequences were just a waste yeah. of resident evil was probably the yeah resident evil i would argue was probably the the from a that went from a game to a film had the most narrative possibility yeah. of course i think they ended up going more game than film in the film adaptation because they, they were just leaning more into the monsters and the stuff they didn't give it the the pathos that the characters could have had because i did play that game with friends and it it had while it had more of a like world war z narrative you know of just like you know didn't have super deep characters but it had great mechanics and 
and um, challenges and things that you could really work into compelling cinematic sequences. I just felt like, you know, they just turned it into an action movie, which is not doing it any justice, which is why I think everyone appreciates the level of um, creative, you know, in, intention that's been given to The Last of Us. Yeah, yeah. Well, look, we're running out of time. So I guess in summation, just in terms of the visual effects, leaving the plot aside for a second and the the social uh, environment in which it exists, and I know that's important, but just in terms of the visual effects, uh, these are both television short-run series, so they benefit from the fact that you're doing something in eight eps or you're doing something in like 10 and not. You know, if you go to some of the earlier visual effects type shows back in the day, they were to make 22 eps a season, right? I mean, right. it's a completely different dynamic. This is and a one-off, right? For- it's over. No, right? two is seasons. No, there's no. One. Last of Us is two seasons because there's two games. Okay. okay, they made Last of Us one and two. Okay, so they 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 announced Last of Us season two when the first just actually before the first episode came out. Okay, because it feels <laughs> it like a it hike. Had a good, so, it had a good closure. I was like, oh, it's good. Ending. Yeah, but yeah, okay. Yeah, sorry, Mike. I didn't mean to interrupt. But I just there's two. Yeah, there, there's two. I, I, I'm okay with it because by all accounts, both games are supposed to be fantastic. And since the team clearly is paying attention, it's the same team, at least with Druckmann. Like I have faith that season two will be, will be, uh, you know, will be good. Yeah. I think that it's such an important show for the network or for the streamer that they would, probably go to a season two if there wasn't a last of us game <laughs> two you know what i mean yeah um, but it's certainly the end of this first season leaves the door wide open for what's going to happen in the second i mean it's not like everything's tied off and uh put yeah. to bed at the end of the show um but in terms of visual effects yeah so like i think the other thing that's really lovely about this is it doesn't feel like again if you go back a few years that it's the B team that's doing the TV work and the A mm-hmm. team is doing the feature films. Um, there's no sense of that at all. It's not like great for a TV budget. I'd have been happy with some of the effects, these visual effects uh, in both shows mm-hmm. in a film and wouldn't have you know, thought twice. I'd argue that of some of the movies, yeah, I'd argue that some of the movies have gotten the B team <laughs> at this point, you know. Well, I think, uh, I think there's so, there is so, I mean, you know, it, the benefit of all this stuff, like, you know, I talked about my own weird negative proclivities around it, I guess, but like, um, or opinions, but, um, you know, the benefit of all this stuff too, is like, there is so much work. There's more work that, uh, in demand for visual effects than there are people to do it you know uh we're mm-hmm. in a we're in a sort of an embarrassment of riches for the time being and that's great for people i know that there were a bunch of layoffs uh, with you know some 7000 people i think were laid off at disney this week which i know is really hard for people but there's so much opportunity out there and you know i hope that um people who do find themselves in uh, a difficult situation uh, quickly find another opportunity because there is still so much work being done. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, and that's a great thing for industry anyway. 
And look, the other thing is the tech industry has had it worse, right? Like the layoffs from the the tech, mm -hmm. um, from the metas and from the uh, big tech companies has been, you know, really horrendous. So mm -hmm. there was a sense in a while there that we were hard, hard pushed to compete to get people to stay in visual effects because they could go to the tech giants and do so much. By the Have way, if you guys had a chance to discuss it now, but. Oh, sorry. Yeah, I was, maybe go I was on. just going to bring it up. I was just wondering if any of you guys have gotten access to the Wonder Studio, Wonder Dynamics beta. No, not yet. Mm. Yeah, I, I'm so the curious. I've seen is the corridor. I've seen the corridor digital dudes yeah. sort of talking about it on Twitter, but. I'm just so curious about the, like, there's all the stable diffusion video stuff of like Will Smith eating spaghetti or whatever, mm -hmm. Scarlett Johansson eating pasta. Those are so ridiculously hilarious, but they look like those first Dali things that mm -hmm. we started seeing, you know, just like six or eight months ago. And I think the, the advent of, and the sophistication of some of those video tools and the, um, you know, machine learning segmentation this that and the other mm -hmm. for all this wonder studio stuff it's going to be so interesting to see how how does the beta look how does it work um how what's our what are its shortcomings and then how quickly does it iterate and become something that starts to have much more potency like you know whatever we see out of the gate is i think we've seen now with so many of these text to image things and the chatbot gpt4 and you know whatever you see this month uh next month it's radically improved you know the whole thing was mm -hmm. like oh well you know they'll never get the hands you know <laughs> and the, yeah. you know mid journey five comes mid -journey. out and like hands look yeah. pretty good you know like um it's everything's just a problem to be solved in that universe but it's also you know where is the push and pull where is there still play um and still opportunity for visual effects artists and stuff. I think it's a really interesting time. It'll be fascinating to see what happens at Seagraph this year for the 50th anniversary Seagraph in LA, how much of this will be topics of discussion. I think it'll be uh, well, pretty fascinating. Also Luma, Luma AI did announce their, yep. their alpha of, you know, nerfs to Unreal, like straight, straight in. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's obviously, and then the, I, did you guys see that paper about the LERFs uh, using, uh, uh, I'll send it to you, uh, maybe you can put it in the show notes. It's a uh, large, uh, hold on, I'm going to read just the, you guys talk, I'm going to pull it up real quick. Can uh, I say Sorry, that, I just um, found it. Anyway, sorry. Uh, UC Berkeley researchers propose LERFs, an AI method for grounding language embeddings from off-the-shelf models like Clip into NERF. So, hmm. uh, Can I I'll, say that I'll, I think this yeah. whole area deserves its own show? Because yes. we've certainly been doing heaps of this stuff. And uh, yeah, neural rendering, um, facial reenactment, like uh, voice stuff. Yeah, I think it deserves its own show. And also it's kind of like we're running out of time. So thanks for opening that can of worms, but I'm just going to say, can we well, teaser. back? But I will yeah. ask you this question. Um, who's going to SIDGRAPH? Who's going to SIDGRAPH? I am. Yamo be there. When, I've got multiple students who will be there. When is it again? August. Yeah, August 5th through the 9th, I think, something like that. Is it LA? Yep. Or Vancouver. At the LA Convention Center. It's the 50th LA Convention Center. Mm. So it, I'll it'll probably be go, a, especially if you guys are going. 
Yeah, come out. We could maybe it'd be nice to have a, a VFX show kind of meetup. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, and do a show there. And it would be really great to be tackling the issue of AI and visual effects. I.e., we have a submission in to do a panel on that. Um, mm -hmm. Interesting. So I've yeah, been it'd asked be really to moderate a panel on that. <laughs> so yeah, <laughs> I think that it could be fun. Probably multiple submissions to do panels on that. So one yeah. of us should should get up. It's so broad. There's but so many. Way, so much to discuss in that universe, like yeah. uh, all, uh, from many, many perspectives. So yeah, it's an endless topic for sure that'll keep changing. So uh, we'll keep you in the loop on that. Obviously we get closer to August, dear listeners, but for now uh, I'm going to say goodbye. Jason, where can people uh, track you down and stalk you? Uh, the Diamond Bros, anywhere that uh, you want to look. Uh, Jason Diamond on all the socials. Uh, and our virtual production stage, which one day will I'll get my shit together and do a interview with Mike about uh, called Zero Space. <laughs> no, I'm begging Zero Space. Yeah, Zero Space. Co. We did just rebuild our wall. It's massive now, sixty five okay. feet. But so, uh, but just for the listeners, trust me. Yes, I know it's I not on. Do it. It's not on Mike. Yeah. Okay. On me, <laughs> <laughs> Professor Wallen. Oh, yeah. I'm at uh, Virginia Commonwealth University in the School of the Arts in Richmond, Virginia. Uh, I also am at mattwallen.com. I'm on mastodon.social, right, I guess is what it's called. Um, that's linked on my website. Um, 8111, I've got a sort of petering out, trickling in some new episodes. I've got a great issue, a great episode coming out with um, Aliyah Aga, who was uh, born in Syria and um, now lives in... Uh, uh, or, uh, yeah, working at Lycan now, but she worked at ILM for a long time. She was a match mover and became a match move lead and told me a great story about why sometimes she thinks it's still easier and she's faster doing 3D camera match moves by hand. And uh, it's a great, great story, a really amazing um, background. And she's a total, like, super genius uh, artist for sure. So it'd be fun to hear her story. And obviously I'm over at FX Guide, but I'm also going to Laval in uh, France. So uh, April 12 to 16, I'm uh, giving a talk at Laval Virtual in uh, France, which is a city just outside of, well, uh, not outside of Paris. It's just some distance from Paris, but it's in France. And uh, Laval is a conference dedicated to um, all things VR, AR, and XR. And it's like mm. a thousand people. So it should be really good. And while I'm going there, April 12 to 16, in uh, later, uh, like around the 22nd, uh, John Montgomery's heading to FMX. So uh, if you're in either France or Germany and uh, you're going to either of those two conferences, we'd love to connect up and say hi, uh, as always. But until then, and hopefully uh, when I get back, we can uh, pick up, well, and certainly organize stuff for SIDGRAPH. But until then, uh, that's it for this week. Thanks so much for listening. See you later. If you have any questions or comments, please email us at vfx at fxguide.com. Copyright FX Guide, LLC.